Today on Newsable, in the last week alone, three people have been killed in house fires around the country. How can we keep ourselves safe? Plus, the boom in Auckland job applications, and I present to you some of the wackiest laws from around the world. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. Kia ora, I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. In this episode, we're delving into the archives to bring you one of the best examples of our long-form journalism, Beautifully Read. This week's story is called The Great Kiakal. It was written by Charlie O'Mannon for the Timaru Herald. Charlie's story sets out how more than 100 years ago, hunters were paid to kill kia in a cull that was really pretty much a drive towards eradication. It's difficult for New Zealanders to comprehend now how a bounty was placed on every beak of these mountain parrots that are now a beloved native bird. Charlie's tale follows the complete about-face and attitudes towards Kia and the conservation effort now underway to ensure the remaining birds thrive and their population grows. Now, here's Michael Wright reading The Great Kia Cull, written by Charlie O'Mannon. Shepherds on the Lake Wanaka station were among the first to notice it. Unusual injuries to the sheep they tended. Tear marks and wounds, some healed, some festering. The condition of the animals varied, from a patch of bare skin to a large open hole trailing in its. It was 1867. The shepherds on the High Country station which back then spanned the entire southern end of Lake Wanaka, floated theories that blackback gulls or packs of wild dogs were responsible. But when they put poisoned sheep carcasses out on the high country, they found them surrounded by dead kia. Wanaka station runholder Henry Campbell ordered his men to watch the sheep carefully. One of those men, James MacDonald, made the first recorded sighting of kia killing sheep on a snowy day on the heights. I saw the keir at work, Donald later said. He would come down from the rocks, settle on a sheep's loin, and peck into the sheep, which would run through the mob. But the bird stuck to the sheep all the time till he got a piece out of it. Then he would fly to the rocks. In retaliation, the keir was slaughtered. It was just the beginning. For the next hundred years, a government-sponsored bounty created a whole industry out of the eradication of the native bird. The kia is one of the world's smartest birds and the only alpine parrot. They've been seen to craft and use tools and are able to work together as a group to solve logic puzzles. Unusually in the bird world, they prolong their sexual intercourse for up to 10 minutes. They're also nationally endangered and decline in number every year. Current estimates put the population somewhere between 3,000 and 7,000 birds. It's thought that between 1867 and 1970, when the government bounty on Kia ended, about 150,000 birds were killed. For those hundred years, anyone with a severed Kia head or beak could present it to their local government office 
and claim a cash reward that got as high as $75 a beak in today's money. It was a miracle that they actually managed to survive that sort of onslaught, Kia Conservation Trust Chair Tamsin or Walker says. It's probably one of the worst cases of avicide of an endemic species globally. In the beginning, Kia were only killed by high country shepherds and musterers, who carried firearms with them while they went about their work. Any Kia they shot earned them a half-crown bonus from the station owners, roughly $15 in today's money. But the station workers were taking too much time out of their days for Kia shooting, and the station owners started to hire professional bounty hunters, whose job was solely to collect Kia heads. These bounty hunters were efficient and cruel. In an 1883 newspaper article, the scientist T.H. Potts recounted their methods. Should a flock of Kia be met with and one of them wounded, the remainder are easily obtained. The bond of fellowship appears to be so strongly developed that the cries of a wounded bird at once attract the presence of its mates. This habit is taken advantage of by the hunter or fowler who usually stands on the wings of a wounded bird, whose calls quickly summon the remainder of the flock within shooting distance. Henry Campbell is quoted in 1883 saying he had personally killed 3,000 kia over 12 years, sometimes as many as 500 in one year. Over the same period, he said he lost 30,000 sheep to kia attacks. Rumours of a savage carnivorous parrot in the highlands of New Zealand caught the imagination of the media in America, and articles were widely republished here. In 1884, the New York Times reported the Kia had, quote, acquired a taste for mutton and refuses to eat anything else. Whenever a flock of Kia discover a flock of sheep, they fall upon the latter, loudly shrieking, Polly wants some mutton, and perching on the backs of the unhappy sheep, tear them to pieces. The articles only increased in salaciousness. In 1914, the Oregon Sunday Journal described the Kia as a terrible man-eating parrot which devours human flesh with evident enjoyment. It continued, at first dead sheep satisfied it, but later only live sheep would do. As the birds became stronger and bolder, they learned to attack unprotected men who were unable to defend themselves. In this way, they developed a taste for human flesh. On top of the bounty paid out by station owners, local and then central government stepped in with their own incentives. The result was that by 1900, bounty hunters could get around five shillings per kia beak, or about $50 in today's money. The number was to climb further. The common language from this period was not merely reduction of kia numbers or of managing the risk they posed to sheep. It was nothing less than eradication. Station holders encouraged their bounty hunters to tramp deep into the Southern Alps on hunts, far from any farm, and the government was criticised for not actively killing kia in national parks, where there was a burgeoning industry in capturing the birds alive and selling them to tourists. During the 1900s, the government bounty slowly started to climb under pressure from the hugely influential station owners, 
whose wool industry made up a sizeable chunk of the country's GDP. At the same time, other New Zealand species were starting to become legally protected. In 1906, the Animals Protection Act extended full legal protection to many New Zealand species. Most of the rest were added in 1910. The kia wasn't fully protected until 1986. It was the last native bird to gain the status. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your, your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Today on Newsable, in the last week alone, three people have been killed in house fires around the country. How can we keep ourselves safe? Plus, the boom in Auckland job applications, and I present to you some of the wackiest laws from around the world. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. In October 1920, the government raised its bounty to five shillings a beak, with some councils paying out two and six. Station owners were dramatically increasing their contributions as well. In 1908, one farmer said he and his neighbours were paying out 10 shillings a head. At its peak, bounty payments reached $75 a bird in today's money. The reaction was immediate. A newspaper article in 1921 reported that after the increase, quote, the mortality of the birds increased immediately, out of all proportion to the previous year's killings. It reported that between October 1920 and August 1921, the government had paid out £900 in bounty, nearly $87,000 in today's money, for 3,500 beaks. And, quote, the tally is fast mounting up. In the year 1919-20, to 20, when the bounty of one shilling was obtained, only £46 was paid out for the destruction of the feathered pest. If the present rate of destruction continues, the kia should before long be numbered in the category of the dodo and the mower. Over the 1920s, £7,200, the equivalent of more than $700,000 today, was paid out. In a single decade, more than 29,000 kia were killed and paid for by the New Zealand taxpayer. It was during the 1920s that the Culls hit their first serious roadblock. The public balked at the enormous sums being paid out to station owners, who were already some of the richest people in the country. 
As one 1920 opinion piece put it, policemen at 12 shillings a day, tailoresses, tram conductors, small farmers and so forth, are to foot the bill of the men who kill cares on the properties of the run holders, who have net yearly incomes of £5,000 upwards. How long is the other fellow going to allow the government to dispense charity to the wealthy spoon-fed run holders? The piece, like many others of the time, went on to question how much damage Kia were actually causing to high country flocks. I am quite willing to admit that Kias kill sheep at times, but not to the extent that some owners maintain. The death rate from ordinary causes in low sheep country is very often as considerable as that in the high country, yet the Kia is not saddled with the blame. If Kia were as extinct as the mower, I question if the death rate in the high country would show much diminution. Another opinion piece from 1927 said, I have seen rows of executed kias, caught red-beaked, nailed upon the stockyard fences as horrible warnings to the parrot clan. There is such thing as carrying punishment too far. Organisations like the Alpine Society and the Native Bird Protection Society lobbied the government to end the bounty system arguing that the accounts of sheep killing had been exaggerated and the culls were, quote, disproportionate to the harm the Kia actually does. In 1930, the government halved the bounty and then for a few years dropped it entirely, but that was more likely because of the Great Depression than the discontent. Also in 1930, it was reported that the lifting of the bounty granted Kia, quote, a relief from an assault that might have resulted in time in its extinction. By 1935, station owners were beginning to report that Kia numbers were increasing again, blaming the Depression years when the bounty was withdrawn. One article that year said that because they are protected by inaccessible terrain, it is unlikely that the wily Kia will ever be exterminated. In the days when there was a price on his head, he became rare and wild. But although every man's hand was against him, and almost every shepherd and musterer carried a shotgun or a pea gun over his shoulder, the Kia survived. As the population increased, the station owners and local councils lobbied the government to restore the bounty, which it promptly did in 1936, and the killing resumed. The amounts paid out gradually rose back to 1920s levels, with vast numbers of beaks collected and paid for. By 1944, the Department of Internal Affairs became concerned that beaks from the protected kaka were being passed off as kia to collect the bounty, as kia became harder to find. The Undersecretary of the Department suggested making it mandatory for all collected beaks to have their head feathers attached for identification. The idea was considered, but rejected, when the Director of the Dominion Museum offered to inspect each beak that was collected if they were sent to him through the post. By the 1960s, kia were becoming rare. Waitaki District Council records showed fewer and fewer beaks paid out for bounty. In 1970, Federated Farmers offered no opposition to a law change that would end the bounty and grant kia partial protection. Evidence, perhaps, that attitudes had begun to change. Or it could have been because partial protection didn't really mean anything. 
1969 letter to county clerks informing them of the law change, Secretary for Internal Affairs Gordon Williams said, quote, If you receive inquiries about the future status of the Kia, you can point out that the order in council does not radically change the present position. Kias may still be destroyed by the occupier of a property or persons acting under his direct authority where the species is causing damage. Wanaka resident Sean Collins remembers stories about his grandfather, Albie Collins, shooting Kia. Probably in the 1930s, he says. Definitely in the 1940s and 50s. And I expect still a little in the 60s and 70s. Albie Collins had a great time killing Kia and said that it was good, easy money, Sean Collins says. I remember that in the 1980s, Albie was chafing at the bit to camp out in the winter at Makarora to get Kia that were killing sheep. But the farmer probably didn't want to pay and dealt with them himself. The campaign to fully protect the Kia was started by children's book author Philip Temple. He was writing a novel about anthropomorphic Kia and became concerned that the bird was still being killed in the high country. Temple wrote to the director of wildlife services in 1980 about giving the bird full protection. He wrote again in 1981. He went on to write a newspaper feature arguing for an end to the killing of the birds, which provoked more letters to wildlife services. Then the Royal Forest and Bird Protection Society and other conservation groups started to get involved. In 1985, Wildlife Services took into captivity five Kia that were causing damage at the remarkable ski field near Queenstown. This triggered massive public backlash and considerable media coverage, all demanding the release of the Remarkables Five. The campaign gained steam and on November 13, 1986, after 120 years of organised massacre, Kia were finally fully protected. Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. In The Human Race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's, it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers, you don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt, abrasive doctor who I had, you know, had not seen before, who delivered the news, just like, you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The Human Race, where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I nearly missed out and I got to do it. And so I feel really lucky. So it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the human race or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevit. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, what, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. I, I, I think Chris, it would be a resignation offence.
if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah we're, well, I'm not worried about it at all. Okay. Nothing iffy in there, that sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. Today, Department of Conservation Science Advisor Kerry Weston leads the government's KIA recovery program. She says the culls resulted in severe population decline for KIA. Around 150,000 KIA were killed in that period, she says, and now there are estimated to be somewhere between 3,000 and 7,000 birds left. Obviously, that's a massive decline and it's going to have pretty large implications for any population that goes through it. Weston says the culls left Kia more vulnerable to other pressures like predation. They're already in low numbers, she says, and they're incredibly vulnerable to predators because they nest on the ground and spend a lot of time on the ground foraging. Although the culls have stopped, predators like stoats and feral cats have meanwhile been increasingly an issue for Kia. We're learning now that they're having a major impact on their population. Now the main driver of Kia decline is introduced predators, and that's definitely where we're focusing our efforts. Weston says in areas where there is no predator control, only one in 10 Kia breeding attempts is successful. In areas with predator control in place, that increases to seven in 10. Part of the problem is that Kia have large home ranges spanning both public and private land. And for predator control to be effective, it needs to cover large tracts of habitat. Weston says about 40% of Kia habitat on public conservation land is predator controlled. The Department of Conservation is trying to expand this, but she doesn't know how much Kia habitat is on private land. We don't have that information, she says. We know anecdotally in some areas they've declined or completely vanished. We're not seeing them increase. They are a species in real trouble. Ben Orhu Station run holder Simon Cameron says it's very rare to ever see a Kia on the Mackenzie High Country Station. I'm 67, he says. And I remember seeing one in the 1968 snow, which had come down off the hill. We were children the last time we remember Kias being down this low. Even in my grandfather's time, it was a very rare occurrence. We used to go up to the Mount Cook car park and saw them all the time, but it's quite rare even to see them at Mount Cook these days. The last four or five times I've been up there, I haven't seen any. It's sad because they're a beautiful bird. Some high country stations do still have Kia, and sheep strike still occurs. Weston says in 2010, a station manager approached Doc saying Kia were killing sheep on the shores of Lake Wakatipu. They asked for a permit to kill the birds. I think they'd always accepted that some sheep were lost to Kia, she says but it had been a lot worse in the last few years. The rangers went out to assess the situation and found the killing was because of one bird. The theory is that it's often just one or two problem individuals, Weston says. 
but the risk is that once they learn the behaviour, they can teach it to others. On this occasion, as a last resort, they euthanised that individual, and the problem ceased. I'm not sure whether we'd resort to that nowadays. Weston says Doc tries to encourage farming practices that reduce the chance of sheep strike. One of the main things is inoculating sheep against soil bacteria, which Kia carry and can cause blood poisoning when it gets into the bloodstream. Blood poisoning is likely the cause of a good chunk of historical sheep strike. Other practices include quickly removing sheep carcasses from hills so Kia don't learn they can be food, and not wintering stock in high elevations when other Kia food sources are scarce. I think the majority of farmers, Weston says, have now moved into the mindset of learning to live with the Kia. They want to do that successfully. Our role is to help them with that. Weston says no cases of farmers killing Kia have been formally reported to Doc, but we hear of things informally through the grapevine. Glen Tanner Station run holder Ross Ivey says Despite being adjacent to the Aoraki Mount Cook National Park, none of his sheep are killed by Kia. I think there was historically, but not now, he says. He credits the 10-year review process, which he says gave back the high land the Kia inhabit to conservation estate. Most of the land where the Kia are used to had sheep 50 years ago, he says, but it doesn't now. That's the biggest reason why they're not a problem. Ivy says he's pro-conservation and has predator trapping on his property as part of the Te Manahuna Auraki project. At the end of the day, he says, we're pretty keen on keeping as many kias as we can. In the early 2000s, Tamsin Orr Walker was working in the native section of Auckland Zoo when she came into contact with three male kia that were being held in captivity there. They made such an impression on her that when she returned to university, she began looking into the bird's history and situation. I became very aware of what the status of the kia was in the wild, she says. And seeing as there had been a bounty on them for a hundred years, no one was really sure what had happened to the birds in the current day. She helped start the Kia Conservation Trust in 2006 to support Kia and reduce the threats to them in the wild, as well as increasing husbandry standards of captive Kia. The Trust visits sites around the South Island to survey the Kia population, get an idea of how many resident breeding pairs there are and what threats those birds are facing, from lead poisoning to predators to traps for those predators that aren't Kia-proofed. Once we identify what the threats are, Weston says, then we set about trying to minimise those risks to the birds. Sometimes these solutions can be technological. When it was identified that some Kia were eating 1080 pallets meant for predator control, the Trust experimented with adding chemicals to the pallets that tasted unpleasant to the birds or made them feel nauseous. The theory was that over time, they'd learned that the pellets didn't taste good and therefore wouldn't eat them. Or Walker says she's hopeful about the future. I guess the only alternative is I say I'm not, in which case we'd all give up and that would be a massive tragedy. 
When you look at some of the success stories in New Zealand, like the Black Robin and the Kakapo and the Takahe, where people have worked tirelessly to save a species, and it's been successful. If they hadn't, we would have lost those species forever. We don't have any other alternative other than to be hopeful and to move on. The story of the great Kia Kull, Weston says, stands as a cautionary tale for our native species and the damage done, even if not everybody takes notice. I got a rather unpleasant phone call just the other week from a woman who was basically yelling at me to give up and that it was a waste of money trying to save the Kia. And I'm just like, what's the alternative? We just give up and let another species slide into extinction? That was the great Kia Cull on the long read from Stuff, written by Charlie O'Mannon, read by Michael Wright and produced by me, Philippa Tolley. This episode's audio was edited by Connor Scott. If you listen via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please do give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. If you liked listening to this pod, Help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support.